0: This podcast is classified MA15 Plus and is not suitable for listeners under the age of 15. It contains strong adult themes and violence.
1: All I saw was just his hands grasping and just the top of his head no struggle, nothing, and then he just slipped away. And the water just rippled back again. The river swallowed him.
2: Mick O'Shea was a good looking bloke back in 1972. A strapping 22 year old who didn't find it hard to attract come ons when he went out at night around Adelaide. But Mick didn't go to pubs or clubs. He went to public parks. You would end up loitering around a toilet block yourself. Mick regularly spent his evenings hanging out at Beats, where men come to have sex with other men.
0: In order to detect them and deal with them, you had to sort of operate partially covertly. And I just didn't, I just never felt comfortable with it.
2: Mick O'Shea was a cop. He wasn't here for gay sex, but to lure, arrest and charge homosexual men. You've got to remember that
0: homosexuality was illegal back then. Uh, it was very illegal. If you got done for buggery, you were likely to go to jail.
2: Mick was in the force during a time in Australia's history when two men living together could be convicted if the house was discovered with an unslept-in bed and a used jar of Vaseline. Because obviously that means they're gay, right? Police had the right to go into any house and look around if they had suspicions. No evidence needed for a warrant. Mick was part of a special team, the South Australian Vice Squad. Their job was to uphold the laws against prostitution,
0: gambling,
2: supervision of the nightclubs. And the other main part of the job, arresting and charging gay men. But while Mick saw himself as more of a straight-down-the-line kind of cop, he says other officers were coming at it from a different angle.
0: Because it was an illegal activity, they were targeted by a number of groups, none less being certain members of the South Australian Police Department, and brutalised in a number of ways. And of course, there was never any comeback because they couldn't report the events because it was a gay situation. So they virtually got done over pretty well.
2: Gay men were being attacked and thrown into the Torrens, the river that runs through the city. It really is quite extraordinary what happened that day on the 10th of May 1972 at 11pm on the River Torrens. It really provoked some amazing events in history. Historian, Tim Reeves. It's the night that changed the futures of all gay men in the state, but ended one man's life forever. Dr George Duncan was an Australian born academic who came to Adelaide from Cambridge to teach legal history and Roman law. Tall and thin, George was an intensely shy and private man he was also unable to swim. Around 11 o'clock the night George Duncan died, 27-year-old Roger James was walking home along the River Torrens after dinner, past a well-known beat.
1: Suddenly, there was a person behind me. I hadn't heard them approach me, and they sort of said, uh, "Do you give it or take it?" And I was a bit taken by this because it's not a normal approach on a beat or anything like that.
2: Roger James, in an interview with the ABC's Stateline in 2005...
1: And so I said neither, and about the same time there was a group of people coming along the path that I was standing on. Just as they came to uh, about level with me, they threw this person into the river.
2: The person behind Roger suddenly pushed him in the back so he collided with the group in front.
1: We struggled and I somehow had my back to the river and they pushed me and I fell in but my foot slipped down into the pilings along the riverbank and I just felt and heard a crack and I knew I'd broken something.
2: Roger had broken his leg.
1: I went to pull myself out and they threw me back in again.
2: Struggling, he managed to swim back to the surface, gasping for air. He saw the other guy who'd been thrown in before him.
1: And when I surfaced, they were saying, go and save him, or go and save your mate, I think they were saying.
2: Roger looked over at the man in the water.
1: All I saw was just his hands grasping and just the top of his head. There was no struggle, nothing. And then he just slipped away. And the water just rippled back again. The river swallowed him. One of them stripped to his underwear and dived in, but by that time, the person had disappeared. Well, they cleared off. And then I thought, oh God, they're gonna realize that they've killed this guy and they're gonna come back and do me. So I crawled to the roadside and um, was hailing people that were driving past.
2: Roger managed to wave down a passing car. When he got in, he recognized the driver. He knew him from gay parties and beats. It was Bevan von Einem who would later gain notoriety as a convicted murderer and suspected serial killer. Von Einem drove Roger to hospital where the alarm of the assault at the River Torrens was raised. Earlier that same night, Mick O'Shea was at a pub across town, reluctantly attending a booze up for a fellow officer. As the night wore on, Mick sat through a lot of boasting from his colleagues about their antics down by the river.
0: They're all yakking about their escapades with the queers. Bloody Corley, Clayton and Hudson take it upon themselves to go for a drive down the Torrens and do a bit of work.
2: That crew left the pub around 10pm. Mick stuck around for another hour or so before heading off. He drove up to a set of traffic lights where he stopped and looked at the car next to him. And there they were. The same cops who'd left the pub more than an hour earlier were still hanging around in the city. The next morning, Mick went into work unaware his career had already been thrust on a new trajectory and that the history of Australian gay law reform was about to begin. Mick was hearing talk around the office of a body that had been pulled out of the river. He says it was known from the beginning that Vice Squad officers were the chief suspects in the murder. The superintendent in charge called all the officers in.
0: He came down very, very early in the piece to advise us that it was a terrible thing that happened and that Lehman and Turner were doing the inquiry and quite clearly they were investigating Vice Squad officers and there was instructions that we were to know nothing about it.
2: The body pulled from the river was identified as Dr George Duncan. When questioned, apparently no one in the Vice Squad knew anything, and Mick didn't report seeing the other officers when he'd pulled up at the lights in the city later that night, a statement that would have contradicted their version of events. A day or two after the incident, Roger James was at Adelaide Police Headquarters. They took me into a room
1: and then they started bringing a, one person at a
2: time. Roger on ABC Stateline in 2005. He'd been brought into the police station to identify his attackers.
1: So I think I asked one of them to speak or to turn around or something and then he said to the police officer, is that all sir? And I thought hang on, that's a bit strange. Why would this common criminal be calling
2: this policeman, sir? And I thought, they're trying to trick me. What Roger didn't know was that the police were the suspects.
1: They'd say things like, are you 10% certain, are you 5% certain, are 50% certain? Well, either you're certain or you're not certain. You can't be 50% certain, can you? So, in that sense, I was quite moral. I mean, because I
2: wasn't certain. In the end, he wasn't able to identify his attackers. Other than Roger James, two other people were interviewed about being down by the river that night. One was a man who had become known as Witness A. He said he'd been tricked into getting out of his car and following someone down to the riverbank, where he was also thrown in. But when questioned, he couldn't recognise his attackers either. The second person interviewed was an ex-soldier called Kevin Williamson who'd been drinking over the road at the barracks. Kevin had been sitting on a bench by the river smoking a cigarette, thinking through some problems he was having with his ex-wife and kids. Suddenly he saw four men in suits and waistcoats running along the bank.
0: Well I seen them scuffling and throw something in the water, I didn't know what it was at the time, and then I seen them running up the river a bit. And one of them must have seen me, because the big one, he come up and sat down alongside me. He said to me, better get going, the coppers will be here shortly. And I said, well, I'm not doing nothing wrong. And he said, I'm telling you to go. And he stood up and he, he said, because I'm bigger than you. I walked up to my car then, I thought, I'm getting out of here.
2: Kevin got a good enough look at the bloke. And even though he knew exactly what he looked like, when interviewed by police, he kept his mouth shut.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, see, I was a bit wary because when I first went up there to identify, they
2: yeah. told me they were police officers. Even though he remembered what they looked like, Kevin told investigators he couldn't recognise them. It was clear that the coppers had done it. Mick O'Shea.
0: They feared every prick in the world over it. Uh, it all looked as though they were really out to get an offender when
2: they weren't, and uh, that's how it went. The investigation into George Duncan's death came up with nothing, and that's where it would normally have ended. But word had got out that police were suspects. George Duncan's boss, Professor Horst Luke, head of law at Adelaide University, started writing letters to Adelaide newspaper The Advertiser, agitating for further inquiries. An inquest was called. Sensationally, the three police officers suspected of involvement refused to give evidence on the grounds that might incriminate them. The inquest failed to reach a conclusion as to who killed Dr Duncan, though as a result the three officers were pushed out of the force. The agitation continued and so two Scotland Yard detectives were called in for an independent inquiry. When they came to re-interview Kevin Williamson, the ex-soldier smoking a cigarette by the river that night, Kevin changed his evidence and admitted that he did, in fact, recognise two of the attackers.
0: And I just kept thinking about it, thinking about it. And I thought, well, why not? You know, if, I mean, even if they are police officers, they're not exempt from the law, aren't they?
2: Kevin picked out two guys as the perpetrators. Both were Vice Squad officers. Roger James, though, still couldn't identify his attackers. Mick O'Shea thinks the Scotland Yard investigation was a snow job from the start. He says he used to drink regularly with the British detectives at the police watering hole.
0: I said to him, I said, when are you actually going to formally interview me about this? And they said, we're not, you've had too much to say already. <laughs> so in <laughs> other words, we don't want you to tell us the story.
2: After successive governments refused to release the Scotland Yard report, It was finally tabled in the South Australian Parliament in 2002, some 30 years after George Duncan's death. Detective Chief Superintendent Bob McGowan from Scotland Yard wrote in his report that officers Michael Kenneth Clayton, Francis John Corley and Brian Edwin Hudson, quote, took part, possibly with others, in throwing George Duncan, Roger James and Witness A into the water. But despite intensive inquiries, no further witness has been found who can assist in providing further evidence against them. End quote. The report stated that there was no real intention of causing anyone's death, and it was, quote, merely a high-spirited frolic which went wrong. Detective McGowan did suggest that Kevin Williamson changing his story could give weight to charges being laid, but the prosecuting authorities declined to act. Mick O'Shea felt his career was ruined by the death of Dr George Duncan, that because he was in the Vice Squad at the time, his name was forever besmirched. His picture had also appeared in the paper showing him leaving the Duncan inquest, so people thought Mick was one of the suspects. Mick rose eventually to become a detective, and so did his hatred of his bosses. Disillusioned, he quit the force in 1981.
0: It was always hanging over my head, and in the end, it all fell over. And I had a breakdown, left the job, and then I sat on it for a long time. I said, Oh, fuck it, I'm going to tell the
2: story. Four years after leaving the force, Mick decided to go public and blew the whistle on Vice Squad culture and the events of that night. This led to another investigation where the same three former Vice Squad men, were charged with the manslaughter of George Duncan. Charges against one of them, Officer Hudson, were dropped. But some 16 years after George Duncan's death, the other two officers, Clayton and Corley, went to trial. They were found not guilty. After his ordeal and the subsequent years of investigations, Roger James said in his 2005 interview with Stateline that, given his time over, he would have done things differently.
1: I can only say that, in looking back, I probably would have got out of the river and gone home and not said anything.
0: It really never ever came to a conclusion departmentally. It was always bloody open-ended and not satisfactorily dealt with. And over the years, it's jogged along and people have asked questions and I've told the story that many times. It just rolls on and on and on. Mick O'Shea, There's no finale for me. It just remains unresolved and will be with me forever and a day. And it will. And as I
2: said, we sit here today and nothing's been resolved. There's been no justice for George Duncan. But his death led to the first bill in Australia to decriminalise homosexuality in 1972. By the time it was passed by the South Australian Parliament, it had been considerably watered down. But three years later, South Australia did become the first state in Australia to totally decriminalise homosexuality. This was a landmark moment in gay law reform in Australia. But decriminalising homosexuality didn't make it legal to have sex at Beats, the places where gay people had been targeted by the Vice Squad for years and where some of the most violent attacks I uncovered occurred. And it wasn't just cops and violent drunks going after homosexual men at Beats. Another group had their sights set on them too. I was sent in as bait because of how young I looked to lure guys into the bushes. Once there,
0: the street kids bashed and robbed them. I remember the kids saying they did it because they were gay, and
2: easy prey. An excerpt from an email sent to me during this investigation. It's a sad and eye-opening story. I reached out to the writer and we organised to meet. But it didn't quite work out that way. That's on the next episode of True Stories, where we dig deeper into the untold stories of Adelaide's dark history.
0: True Stories Season 3 is inspired by Deepwater, SBS's first cross-platform network event. Head to sbs.com.au forward slash truestories for more details. These stories are adapted from Mark Whitaker's long-read investigation into a series of Adelaide gay-hate murders, which will be published online at the end of the season. True Stories is an SBS online production. Told by Mark Whitaker, Music and sound by Martin Peralta. Produced by Gina McEwan. Illustrations by Jeremy Lord. And commissioned by Kylie Bolton and Ben Napastek.